We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to a new Sox Machine Podcast episode. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's Monday, May 22nd, 2023, as the Chicago White Sox just finished sweeping the Kansas City Royals at home. Concluded a 5-1 week and wrapped up the 9-game homestand with a 6-3 record. Yes, White Sox, more of this. Speaking of more of this, we'll discuss what sparked this good week for the White Sox thanks to outstanding pitching from Michael Kopech and Joe Kelly, preview the upcoming series at Cleveland, and ponder if the White Sox lineup needs to be shuffled for a short period while Tim Anderson continues to struggle. If the playoffs would start tomorrow, the Boston Red Sox with a 26-21 record and the Toronto Blue Jays, who are 25-22, would be sitting at home watching the postseason. Meanwhile, the 25-22 Minnesota Twins would be hosting a playoff series. Now you could say it's the luck of the draw, and whoever wins the American League Central will be happy to be there. Make no mistake... If this current trend continues, and I don't see why it wouldn't, an American League team is going to miss the playoffs from the American League East or West with a better record than the team who won the American League Central. That's going to cause some unhappiness. Is there a way to fix it? That's why I invited our guest to speak about it as he just recently wrote about this very situation for CBSSports.com. It's Matt Snyder. Matt, thanks for coming on the Sox Machine Podcast. Greatly appreciate it. My pleasure. Uh, good to be here. And I, I want to say right off the top that I love doing the team specific things so I can be totally honest and say that um, I kind of feel like one of the biggest reasons that it became kind of a talking point is that the Yankees were left out, even though they had a better record than the AL Central team. And like my reaction to that is just to laugh like, all right, is it really that big of a travesty? <laughs> like, <laughs> all right. You know, like I said in the article, it, it if Yankees and the thing is a lot of Yankees fans wouldn't cry about this because they have very high standards. They're kind of almost entitled as a fan base. But what I would say to the people complaining is don't finish fourth place. 
you know, if you want to get in the playoffs, don't be don't be a fourth place team. You have plenty of head to head opportunities against the teams in front of you. Just be better and win more games. Are you surprised with how things are shaking out in the American League after the first quarter, especially with how well the American American League East has been playing and how poorly the American League Central has? Generally speaking, no. Um, in, in our gambling show before the season, one of the things I leaned heavily on was the change in the schedule and the American League, League East playing so many fewer games against each other. And that means they get those games elsewhere. And it looked like it was going to be a better division top to bottom anyway. One of the things off the top of my head, I don't remember it, but the Red Sox had a just an atrocious record against the rest of the AL East last year. I mean, it was like something like 30 games under 500 against the AL East. And they played like a something like a 90-95 win team when they didn't play fellow AL East teams. And they're the worst team in that division. I thought they were coming in. I still think they are. Um, so it, I, one of the things I leaned on was like picking the AL East overs and going on the unders and, and the rest of the AL. And it looks like it's kind of shaking out that way. Now, I said generally speaking, because – yeah, specifically, there are things that are surprising. Like, I didn't think the Rays were going to be this awesome. Uh, if you look at the Central, I would have thought the Guardians were going to be better. I certainly would have thought the White Sox were going to be better than this. Um, but, yeah, like, generally speaking, it's kind of what I expected. With the balanced schedule, are we running into an issue with the, how the divisions are set up with this playoff format? Because – there's yeah. going to be some baseball fans that will say, well, the point of the postseason is to have the best teams in the postseason. And if the Minnesota Twins or whoever wins the American League Central is really like the seventh or eighth best team in the league, then isn't yeah. there something wrong with the postseason format? Yes, probably. Um, and it, it, if you can, we can go back several years. And if you can just kind of start gathering breadcrumbs on where this thing is headed, it's headed to completely not doing away with the divisions, but revamping them, uh, shaking things up because doing away with the DH. All right. And now the national league and American league aren't that much different anymore. Uh, a, more interleague play fewer games within the division that, which again means more games against the other divisions. It's you're moving more and more toward something that's a lot more uniform so it, it just you can kind of see where it's headed, and I think we're going to continue to head on down that path. And something I mentioned in the article was uh, a few radio stations had asked me about the realignment. That's the only reason I wrote about it, because I didn't really feel that strongly about it. But I, people were asking me about it, and sometimes that's how it goes. I go to the editors, and like I've had like five people in last week ask me if they should realign or do something different with the playoffs. And I think it's probably because the Yankees and Red Sox look like they might get screwed in this format. But And they were like, hey, if that's worth discussing and there's people thinking about it, let's write it. So through the course of writing it, one of my thoughts that came up was uh, they're not going to redo everything, I don't think, until they expand. And they're not going to expand until the situations with Oakland and Tampa Bay are settled in the ballparks. So I feel like it might take it until maybe a decade from now, maybe less than that. But come, we'll say 2030. I think that we'll have 32 teams and the divisions will be pretty well redone. I think they'll, they'll maintain stuff like sticking in the Chicago area. They'll keep the Cubs and Cardinals together. Like come hell or high water, they'll keep the Yankees and the Red Sox together. They'll keep the Dodgers and Giants together. But I do think other than that, there will be a lot of shaking up. Well, if you don't expand then the postseason to like eight teams at a four division format. Probably will. Matt, you're still running the same issue, right? Like yeah, you can still have absolutely. like three teams in a division or four teams in a division better than the second place teams yes. in the rest of the league. 
So is this really a problem? I, 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 could, I could understand people like pounding the table and being like, look how terrible the American League Central is and yes. look how good the East and West are. <laughs> but is this really a, a problem for Major League Baseball? No, I don't really think it is. I mean, like I said, probably the only reason I wrote about it is because a lot of people are talking about it. And sometimes that's the way it goes. Sometimes like I feel really strongly about something. So I'll go with that. Other times I see a lot of people talking about it and I'll just kind of give my thoughts on that. As I said, I kind of concluded, like, just leave it how it is. It's not really broken. You can come up with individual examples. As I mentioned in the article, like the 2015 NL Central when the Cubs had the third best record in all of baseball and they were a road wildcard team. That's just the way it shook out that year. Uh, You know, sometimes things are going to happen. It's just year to year ebbs and flows, anomalies, any which way you want to phrase it, things are going to pop up like this. And my reaction is never, we need to revamp the entire system. It's always, well, we're letting in right now. I still, I, I will say, I still appreciate that baseball has the most exclusive playoffs out of the major North American sports. Like it's still the hardest to get in. Uh, but when you're having six teams per league get in, my response is always just be better. You know, it's if you get squeezed out, it's because you didn't do a good enough job within your division and you should have done better. Do you think the balanced schedule is working from a competitive standpoint? Obviously, from a fan standpoint, it's great that each team's going to play against each other and planning for future road trips next year, like weekend trips, be like, oh, let's look at the schedule and maybe the White Sox will go to all these places that they usually haven't been to in like four or eight years with the, the previous way that they scheduled games. But from a competitive standpoint, is the balanced scheduling working? It's hard to say. I mean, I it, I guess it depends on what you want because I kind of think it's it's cool to see a variety of different teams. And I honestly kind of thought it was overload to play 18, 19 games against teams in your own division when, you know, for example, the Yankees are in Cincinnati tonight and I went to look at Aaron Judge's splits. He hasn't played there since 2017. Uh, when you have stars that big and there's some cities that never get to see players like that, if you think about if we say in the NL Central, how long it might be between seeing Shohei Otani and Mike Trout in right. your home ballpark, something like that. I think in terms of marketing the game to casual fans and letting them see the superstars as many times as possible. I like the more balance and I understand that. But the funny thing is I feel like there might be some contradiction in what I'm saying, because I just a second ago said (laughs) be better within your division. And now we're taking away games from that division. I still think 13 is enough. I still do think 13 is enough, but I could see somebody replying back to me and saying, well, hold on. You just said be better within your division, but now we're taking away all these chances within the division. Um, So like I said, I I guess it just depends on what you want out of it. It's major league baseball's stance. Generally speaking is the most entertainment value possible for the most number of people possible. And under that umbrella, I think more variety is, is better. Yeah, I bring that question up because right now the American League Central is 14 and 41 against the American League East. Holy cow. <laughs> I mean, I knew it was bad, but it, when you throw a number on it, it's just yeah. that's I mean, like A's level bad the entire division. Yeah, and yeah. You know, Detroit's two and fourteen. Uh, they have a great record outside of the American League East, but they're below yeah. five hundred because they're they're two and fourteen. 
I wanted to get your outside thoughts about what is going on on the south side of Chicago with the White Sox. Obviously, that's okay. the team that we cover. And they should be in a better contention spot, especially with how weak the American League Central is. Absolutely. What are your thoughts about this White Sox team in, let's say, the near future, like two weeks to four weeks, uh, and I guess the medium-term f- future between now and the All-Star break? Like, are the vultures already circling Rick Hahn's office and blowing up his phone and, and looking to make trades? Well, yeah, ju- just for example, uh, last night I was on San Diego with Tony Gwynn Jr. on his show. And uh, he asked about trade deadline and said, it doesn't seem like there's going to be a ton of names out there. Everybody's pining for Otani. But uh, one of the first thought I had was Eduardo Rodriguez, but the Tigers aren't even that far out of it. Uh, But then I was like, you know, the White Sox might be the one who are prime for some picking there because they could be far enough out. It looks like you probably, it might be the end of the road with this nucleus. Um, But I mean, not a lot of them are, at free agency at the end of this year or even after next year. So it's, it'll be interesting to see how they navigate that. The the perspective I have on them is the, the short version is it seems like an absolute mess. Um, I, I think that they had, you go back to 2021, a lot of talent, a lot of top level talent, uh, whether it was rotation, bullpen, position players, really high end talent, but it seemed like, there wasn't much organizational depth that if you had major injuries, and again, it seems like a lot of their the the regulars are injury prone. For even if it's nip, even if it's minor stuff like Anderson, it seems like he always has to have a week here and a week there on the injured list. And then you know with Aloy and the major injuries, but it just seems like a combination of not enough organizational depth with all the injury issues. It just ain't happening with that group. Is that kind of where you are? Oh, yes. Yeah, that's okay. what we've been, <laughs> that's so, what we've yeah. been saying. Like, like Lucas Giolito, Matt, I would be shocked. I would be shocked if Lucas Giolito is with the White Sox after August 1st. He, he is a free agent. Jerry Reinsdorf does not approve contracts that Lucas Giolito will be seeking in free agency. Okay. The writing seems to be on the wall there. Well, and this one seems like it would hurt, but Tim Anderson seems like kind of somebody that could go. It's through next year, right? Yeah, he has contract. he has two more contract options. They're club oh, the options. options. Okay. Yeah. Twelve and a half and fourteen and a half million dollars. So you can have them for the next two years for twenty seven million. How are this how are the how's the shortstop situations in Los Angeles Dodgers at Atlanta Braves? Because last well, I checked, that not could great. Work. Either one of them could work. Yeah. I mean the Dodgers are probably in less dire straits. Because it goes back to what I'm talking about, the opposite of the White Sox. Their organizational depth is off the charts. They lose Gavin Lux to a torn ACL in spring training and through musical chairs end up playing uh, Outman every single day. And now he's the front runner for NL Rookie of the Year. It's ridiculous how they can just plug and play guys. But the Brave system is kind of bottomed out right now. I've seen them ranked 30th in some farm system rankings. And if they aren't comfortable with Von Grissom this year at shortstop, because they're not in a position to wait. If you're the Braves, it's, you know, we're world series contenders right now. That's something that could work. I, he'd be a great fit there, man. And then finally the Minnesota twins, do you buy the twins? Do you believe that they can in this really weak American league central that after the first quarter of the season, they're the cream of the crop in the American league central. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, it, I guess I answered it already, didn't I, by my reaction? <laughs> I, I buy him as being able to win the Central, but, you know, how many wins? 85-ish? I don't know. I feel like maybe the Guardians could beat him there. I don't have any faith in the Tigers at all. White Sox, I feel like, dug themselves too much of a hole. The Royals aren't even worth talking about. Um, yeah, I guess. I, I don't have much confidence in the, the Twins to to win the division, but they might be the best choice. I might still go Guardians, but, man, their offense is so bad. It is bad. They're going to need, like, Jose Ramirez to be his 99th percentile self, which is totally possible. But then you need Jimenez to be like last year, Oscar Gonzalez to be like last year. You need, they just need so much stuff there with that offense. And the the rotation isn't as kind of dominant as it, it seems like it. you would expect it to be if you're picking them to win the division. I would probably reluctantly pick the Twins right now. I just – now, speaking of the rotation, they actually do – like I would have faith in Sonny Gray and Joe Ryan and Pablo Lopez there. I do have faith in that rotation. It's just the offense is so hot and cold, and I expect Correa to start hitting, but, I mean, we're getting close to June. Uh, Buxton, you know, is he going to have his, his month-long injury – the rest of the lineup just isn't all that impressive. It's it's not the most impressive group. It seems like they're primed to get maybe knocked out by the Yankees again, which would, as much as I like to make fun of the Yankees as we started, like that would be all kinds of hilarious. And I know you probably agree with that. Yeah, it's been a long time since the Twins have won a playoff game. Yeah. Uh, Johan Santana started that playoff game for the Minnesota It doesn't Twins. look good for him this year either, if they can hold the Central, because they're going to be totally overmatched, whoever they're facing off against. Yeah, and that's just really the story of the American League Central, at least after the first quarter. And I'm with you, Matt. I don't think this is going to get any better for the Central as the season progresses. No, I don't. Progresses. No. No. Yeah, so the perks... I mean, of- if you look, even if you looked at, like... Some of the teams in the ALEs, I saw somebody replied to me on Twitter today and said they're, the ALEs teams are overperforming their Pythag. Well, I mean, I'm not going to get into that on such a small sample anyway, but you put that aside and just look at the personnel. Those teams are way better than anybody right. in the Central. And we could go to the West then and say the Astros are going to be better than they've been. I would say from this point forward, they're going to be probably one of the best teams, if not the best team in the American League. Um the Rangers, they're going to go hot and cold, but they could be like last year's Phillies. The Angels are probably going to be what they've been. The Mariners, what if they get on a hot streak again? I mean, the, the West, other than the dregs that are the A's, the, the West is pretty strong too. So I feel like the Central is just going to get beat up on all year when they're not in the division. The perks of the balance schedule. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody's got to win this division. Yeah. And uh, right now it looks like it's going to be the Minnesota Twins unless a miracle happens in the south side of Chicago. You yeah. can read Matt's excellent work on CBSSports.com and follow him on Twitter, folks. He's at Matt Snyder CBS. Matt, thank you so much for joining the Sox Machine podcast. All right, man. Take care. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. 
Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome back to the Sox Machine Podcast. And now joining me to help recap the Chicago White Sox sweeping the Kansas City Royals, a 6-3 and three homestand. And now sit six and a half games back at the Minnesota Twins in the American League Central is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim. An excellent week for the White Sox. They just need three more weeks like this in the next month to climb out of the hole they dug for themselves. Yeah, I wish they could play the Royals and a Jose Ramirez-less uh, Cleveland Guardians team every week, but you have to uh, you know play who you who you're playing on the schedule. And right now, I mean, they they're taking care of business. It's not necessarily impressive, but it's ordinary. It doesn't feel like they're necessarily scuffling for the five runs they get or the four runs they get. It doesn't seem like they're getting especially lucky with the runs they're not allowing, you know, for the pitching staff. So, you know, it's fine. It's good. I I think it's what we thought we'd see more of, like maybe two weeks into the season versus six, seven weeks into the season. And a follow question from the conversation I had with Matt Snyder and I like to get your thoughts because uh, that you pointed out, it'd be nice if the White Sox every week get a chance to face the Kansas City Royals and a Jose Ramirez-less uh, Cleveland Guardians team, but that Guardians team just got swept by the New York Mets, and we'll preview that next series for the White Sox later in the show. Uh, so even with Jose Ramirez, the Guardians are still struggling. And looking at the balanced schedule... The conversation I had with Matt was it hurts the team like the White Sox with this format because they have fewer division games. And 48 games into this balanced schedule, Jim, do you think the White Sox wish they had those 24 extra games against their American League Central opponents? I think they do, especially with the way this particular season broke down. With, you know, when you look at the April schedule, Astros, all the Rays games, Phillies, Orioles, who are better than I think most people thought, even though most people weren't going to be surprised by the Orioles this year. The Orioles are playing especially well to surprise people yet again. Uh, even the Pirates, you're catching the Pirates when they were hot. Like that's a really tough opening month. And that's a month where when you look at their schedule, they face the Twins three games and that accounts for all of their central games. So that's a really rough way to start. And if you're not prepared for the season, I think it's fair to say that the White Sox didn't look especially prepared for the start of the season. And, you know, that was kind of the whole idea with changing from Tony La Russa to Pedro Griffal and, you know, everything that the White Sox addressed or thought they addressed over the course of the offseason spring training with their preparation versus actually going out and getting more talented players besides like Andrew Benintendi. Uh, I think they would have wished that the you know, Royals showed up somewhere in the middle of that first month or the Tigers or the, the Guardians, especially when the Guardians look like this. We thought, maybe thought the Guardians would look weaker, but they've been off their game. So, yeah, I think the way this schedule broke down, if maybe the tough month you know showed up in August versus April, we wouldn't be focusing on it so much right now. But with the hole the White Sox dug, like I, you know, based on what we've seen, 
And we did see the White Sox lose three out of four from the Royals earlier. So it's not to say that, you know, even the April version of the White Sox could have run the table in the AL Central uh, in the first month. But it would have been some relief and it would have been some, you know, a case like, say, for uh, the pitching staff, uh, just getting on track earlier, uh, the bullpen, having some easier innings or some lower leverage uh, outings to have to get uh, to get on track and to get uh, the hierarchy set in the bullpen earlier versus having so many games of scrambling and getting waxed and then like having to barely hang on. And I think it just wore them down initially. And even you know going into May with a weaker schedule, it took them a while to start looking like a team that had a weaker schedule. And, you know, it's not too late because the division is so lousy, but it's, you know, put them in a hole that they can't certainly appreciate. And if they do climb out of it, and right now they're on pace to climb out of it by like July uh, versus like spend the whole season doing it, uh, you know, it does, you know, make you wish that you just had six more games against all of these teams versus facing the entire National League. Yeah, because again, the White Sox are six and a half games back of the Minnesota Twins. They only have seven more games against the Twins this season because of the balanced schedule. I love the balance schedule from a fan perspective. I think it's great for the game that your team gets to face every team in Major League Baseball. But I was curious from a competitive standpoint now, does this really hurt? Obviously, it's helping a great deal for the American League East teams, like getting more games against the Central teams, uh, getting more games outside of their division because, man, that division is so tough. And I think Matt mentioned in his column that the winning percentage of games outside of the division for the American League East teams would be on pace to win 108 games this year. Wow. So the balance schedule helping Mm -hmm. a great deal for the American League East with their win-loss record. American League Central, not so much. And that includes the White Sox. But it's just something that I thought about, like, with the conversation with Matt and now after the 48 games, like how is the balanced schedule impacting the standings across major league baseball? And I feel like every team, in the American league central, because it is the weakest division in the league right now, would like to have more division games. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm curious when it, you know, save the white Sox finish second in the division you know, they give the Twins, yeah, I assume it's going to be the Twins, kind of a run, and they finish, like, say, four games out of first, and maybe that's, like, 81 wins or something like that. But they finish 10 games out of the second wild card spot. I wonder what that does to the conversations inside the White Sox front office. It may do nothing, just because, you know, we've heard from Jerry Reinsdorf that he's very comfortable finishing second, and maybe even third or fourth under certain circumstances, because, you know, it's 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 not a failure. And you know, while I'm somebody who isn't winning isn't everything, I think when you spend years intentionally losing, and then you, you know, in the middle of a, you know, a start where you're fourth place and you're expected to be in first and you're saying, well, fourth is sometimes okay. Uh, I, I think that does, uh, you know, expose the way the White Sox run a little bit. But let's say like, you know, you can assume a slight change of heart or maybe a little bit more competition from Jerry Reinsdorf. I wonder how the White Sox or whether the White Sox front office would reframe the way they're building the team. And say like, well, you know, are we going to be the best in the AL Central or do we have to try a little harder to contend with the other teams outside of the Central? Uh, Are we going to settle for the best, you know, are we going to settle for being the best in the worst division or are we going to like 
you know, I, I guess quality proof our team both, you know, for October, but also for in the event that say the guardians get hot or the tigers finally put it all, all together. And all of a sudden you do have like a couple more competitive teams than you thought. Uh, do you want to be able to like take advantage of a division elsewhere that's weaker than you thought? Uh, I, I think the white Sox have been so concerned about beating the guardians and beating the twins that we've seen them settle. We've seen them settle for, you know, as I mentioned, Andrew Benintendi and settling for Mike Clevenger instead of, you know, building actual rotation depth and, and building a team that can score, you know, 150 more runs than they allow in, in a season. Like, you know, they're, they're not really aiming for that kind of uh, level with the way they build a team. And if the division is it, like if they have no shot at the wild card and, you know, even though there are short series in October and anything can happen, like you have to look at that as a case where we should be expected to be knocked out in the first round of the postseason. You know, it does make me wonder if this is ultimately maybe good for the White Sox in the sense that like if they finish second, in the worst division, that means they're like, what? One, two, three, four, five, the eighth, ninth best team in the league. And you spend all these years losing to build the ninth best team in the American league. Uh, that would have to, irk a front office that actually has ambition. Whether the White Sox actually have ambition is the question that I think we're all, you know, nobody wants to ask because nobody wants the answer to it, I think. But that would seem to be a case where if the White Sox actually had a little bit of fire uh, to be better than just, you know, okay, that would certainly, you know, lay it pretty bare that they have a lot of work to do. Speaking of playing with fire, the White Sox pitching staff deserves a shout-out for this week. Yes, they did face two bottom five offenses in baseball with Cleveland and Kansas City, but they only allowed 11 runs in six games against the Guardians and Royals. And a good place to start with the shout-out to the pitching staff, Jim, is Michael Kopech having the best outing of his young career on Friday. Yeah, it's uh, and really not doing anything different just basically pitching his best game with the stuff that he currently has like he wasn't throwing a changeup that he uh, suddenly developed or he wasn't throwing like an especially great slider or curveball changing the order of his pitches he was 70 percent fastball he was 25 per, or like 20 percent changeup uh, a smattering of curves and changes here and there to give you know hitters alternate looks but the fastball did the work and if he can do that um, even once in a while, doing less is certainly good enough for what the White Sox need from him. Like they don't, you know, it's the, you know, uh, feast and famine that I think is, you know, will be frustrating from here on out, knowing that he can do go and do that and just undress hitters with a fastball alone. Basically the slider was okay, but the fastball was great. Uh, there's a lot of potential for just like having good starts, you know, having stuff that's less than his best, like throwing six innings of two run ball, which I think everybody would love to see Michael Kopech do more often, uh, considering he's like, you know, right going into the season, he was the number four starter right now, you know, with Lance Lynn and he's turning around too. But right now I think you want Kopech to be at least number three, uh, until we're convinced that Lynn is back. Like, that's something where like Kopech can maybe be that guy if he can access that stuff a little bit more. And it really seemed like he had ironed out his release point. Like the fastballs were all where he wanted them. And if he missed high, it was almost useful or like maybe not always on purpose, but at least 
you know, the eye level was the same. He accomplished the same thing that he wanted to do with it. Very few mistakes with the sliders and the fastball was so good that when he did make a mistake with the slider, they were so geared up for protecting against the fastball that they couldn't really do it. Like that is the template for success for Kopech. And that pitch is so good that it's possible that he can do it more often. Really, you know, when you look at a guy who's maybe like one and a half to two pitches, you think that, yeah, he's going to be in trouble against better offenses. And that's true to a certain extent. But when he throws that fastball, you know, with so much ride and so much action and so the location is so great, just like ironing out his release point and getting a consistent release point with like multiple pitches and throwing strikes and not getting himself in trouble with, you know, five walks over six innings. Because we've seen him like, you know, limit hits just fine. It's just the walks are killing him. Ironing out that release point and, and having the consistency that he showed with uh, just when he was, you know, letting go of the pitches. Uh, I, it sounds simple. It's not it's not simple. I mean, that's what every pitcher battles himself with the consistency of delivery. But like if he can come anywhere close to that, he's a good pitcher. And you can you can table the bullpen talk for a while because the White Sox, you know, with with uh, Giolito being a free agent, with Lance Lynn having an option that looks uncertain right now, Clevenger being a free agent, uh, assuming his mutual option you know goes the way most mutual options do. Like they need this version of Kopech in the rotation. They can't fill so many spots if it looks like Lynn is not worth the option. Kopech's four seamer on Friday had a max velocity of ninety nine point four miles per hour. That's the type of elite velocity we have not seen from Kopech in a while. The Royals had 31 swings against Kopech's four-seam fastball. They whiffed 15 times, a 48% whiff rate on a four-seam fastball, Jim. Like, you rarely see that today in Major League Baseball. You rarely see that type of whiff rate. And, and they were late on 96, 97. It wasn't just like the 99 stuff that was, you know, mystifying them. Uh, his ordinary fastballs, they were, you know, I left uh, out loud a couple times just seeing how late they were in fastball counts. He did mention, I think it was either Kopech or Sebi Zavala. They did do a little tweak on the slider. Instead of throwing more sweeping sliders, they were trying to throw sharper sliders with a, with a little bit more of a drop. Something to pay attention to if the sweeping action for Kopech is just not working. Maybe he ends up throwing more of what would be what would probably look like a cut fastball uh, coming out of Kopech. We'll, we'll see on what he does with the breaking stuff. If he is a one-pitch pitcher and it's this type of elite performance from the four-seam fastball, I do think it's going to work great against bottom five, bottom 10 offenses, Jim. But to your point, what happens when he does face an elite offense and he is sticking with the fastball? Does he get burned in a future start? We're not going to know for a little bit because this next week, the White Sox have a road trip to Cleveland and Detroit, not facing elite offenses, but there are series coming up against the New York Yankees, against the Los Angeles Dodgers, if Kopech gets one of those starts against those teams, I'd be curious to see on how this game plan works. But stick with the game plan for the time being because whatever mm-hmm. he was doing before clearly was not working. It was making me think that uh, Kopech may have to go back to the bullpen because this whole starter business is uh, not working out for him. 
if Gavin Sheets is at first base on Friday instead of Andrew Vaughn, Sheets catches Massey's little liner, and Kopech is entering the ninth inning with a perfect game. <laughs> I, I do believe that. Like, the height difference would would have changed on how that liner played out. I think Gavin Sheets catches it, and yeah, Kopech is uh, chasing history on Friday night, but a phenomenal start from Michael Kopech. And Lucas Giolito, despite giving up the home run to Salvador Perez, he was lights out again. Uh, Lance Lynn, not a great start to the game, but he got back on track, uh, which is nice to see against Kansas City. But the pitcher that everyone's talking about, especially for those that are attending games in the seats gym, is Joe Kelly, as he is now Mm -hmm. earning his paycheck. He got the save on Sunday But Joe Kelly now in his first 13 innings of the season has a 2.70 ERA, 19 strikeouts to just one walk. He has a 0.6 whip, and opposing hitters are hitting just 149 against Joe Kelly. One, I have to imagine contending teams are already circling the White Sox like vultures about Kelly's status. Two, where is this coming from, Jim? Well, I mean, he's always had this stuff to a certain extent. That's why they signed him. That's why they prioritized him over, like, you know, helping the offense last year. They thought that, you know, with him and Hendricks and Kendall Graveman, that's a lockdown 7-8-9 bullpen. So they are getting what they thought they paid for. Maybe, you know, this is certainly the, what, 90th percentile outcome this current streak he's on. But... This was the kind of stuff they thought they could get from him. Certainly, eighth inning stuff could step into the closer role if needed. Um, it looks like one, he's fully healthy. Like the the fastballs, not only is the fastball good, but like the the slider velocity is really good. Like he's throwing secondary stuff uh, in the '90s versus just you know uh, high '90s fastball and a high '80s uh, slider like Gregory Santos does. So there's that. He also seems like he's having a lot of fun with the pitch clock. Like he's somebody who just, there's always this, um, he has this effect of just looking exceptionally bored out there. And when he's struggling, it looks like he doesn't care. And it looks like just, he's, you know, cashing a paycheck kind of, and, and it can be very frustrating when the White Sox prioritize him over, you know, guys who would make more of a difference over the first seven innings. And he shows up, uh, blows a lead and then just is chewing gum and staring off in the middle distance and everybody gets frustrated. But when he's rolling and when he's doing the, you know, uh, multiple leg kicks and alternating with quick pitching, it looks like he's bored with hitters. And that's certainly more enjoyable. Like, I love watching guys who are so comfortable out there that they almost make the field their own. Like Robinson Cano, uh, I guess before he got, uh, you know, busted for PED use. Like uh, I thought he was going to be an easy hall of famer. And I would have supported that because like a guy who makes baseball look that easy um, should be a hall of famer. Like, you know, maybe you should care more. Sure. Or maybe you should look like he's caring more, but also like if you're able to look that relaxed and still be one of the top 10 players in baseball, like that is so awesome. Like I would love to know what that feels like to, to be that comfortable in such a high competitive, you know, high stress competitive environment. So Kelly is, is, channeling my favorite form of baseball player, which is just guy who ultimately, you know, thinks he holds all the cards and is just loving every minute of it, even if his face doesn't show it. So, you know, it's two things, just being healthy and uh, just knowing that 
you know, he, he's got that kind of late inning, um, he's carrying himself as a leading reliever and the pitch clock just seems to add something to him. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the case. I, I, you know, I imagine we'll hear about it more and more if Kelly looks like the White Sox all-star representative as we're, as we're talking, you know, trying to form rosters uh, as, as that approaches. But if he is, and if he gets so much attention, if he's a deadline guy, like we're going to be hearing a lot about it. And I just, that, that's what I want to know is, is he, is the pitch clock the best thing to happen to him in terms of just taking his elite stuff and then inspiring him to mess with timing even more? Hmm. That's a good question. I don't know. Hopefully that is a question that is asked how Joe Kelly feels about the pitch clock. Can't, can't count on James Vegan asking that question. He didn't bother asking Pedro Grafal what kind of phone he uses. <laughs> no, nah, I'm kidding, James. This is a more serious question. No, it, it is a it's a good thought, Jim. I hadn't thought about it. To your point, yes, when you're when you're in guarantee rate field in the seats and you're watching Joe Kelly manipulate the pitch clock, it it is fun to watch him do that, and it just draws your attention. You can't look away when Joe Kelly is pitching right now for the White Sox when he's coming to games, and he has been dominant. And I tweeted this out, and I still believe it. Any contending team should be contacting Rick Hahn right now, asking what it's going to take to get Joe Kelly. Because I think Joe Kelly could definitely help a lot of contending teams, especially making their postseason run. One can make an argument that the White Sox are still a contending team. If you believe that, then the White Sox, I guess, can hold on to Joe Kelly for a little bit longer. Uh, to see if that is actually true. But mm-hmm. Joe Kelly, is uh, he's helping himself out a, a great deal. Either he's going to help the White Sox get back into this, or he's going to find himself in a better position with another team later this season that has World Series aspirations. Yeah, I think the catch with thinking about dealing him like early, well before the deadline, is if the White Sox are going to get back into it, performances like Kelly's are the... You know, one way to close the gap in a hurry, just elite bullpen work, seven, eight, nine. We've seen that with the Orioles, like during the Buck Showalter days. We saw that with the Royals, uh, you know, during their two year run, their three year window where they were the Central's best team. Uh, that just when you have Kelvin Herrera, Wade Davis, Greg Holland, uh, maximizing every lead you have in the late innings, like that makes your team look so much better than it may actually be. Like one injury can set the whole thing toppling over and all of a sudden you're just not nearly as good as you thought you were. But the White Sox have to find every shortcut to get back in this and shortening the game to where like if Lucas Giolito gets you six innings, all of a sudden, you know, you have some mixed match because Kendall Graveman's throwing the ball better too. Uh, You have Graveman and Kelly and then, Mm -hmm. you know, when you have Middleton uh, appearing once in a while in high leverage versus like, is he the best reliever in the bullpen? That's a whole lot better. Aaron Bummer's throwing the ball a little bit better. Garrett Crochet's back. So there are a lot of ways without even Liam Hendricks being in the picture yet that you can figure out the, the seventh inning of that seven, eight, nine, if Graveman and Kelly are throwing the ball as well, because the stress is off, uh, you know, Reynaldo Lopez being the best pitcher in the bullpen, because I don't think he's that guy or, you know, Keenan Middleton going from non-roster invitee to closer, which probably shouldn't be the case either. Like there is a hierarchy now. And I think, you know, I like what Griffal is doing in terms of arranging his bullpen to where like, if it's two, three, four, it's Kelly. If it's like, you know, five, six, seven might be Graveman, seven, eight, nine, 
you know, maybe Lopez or maybe somebody else. Like he is paying attention to the quality of the hitters coming up and Kelly is getting those two, three, fours and he's having zero problem with them. Well, in order for that shortcut to work, the bullpen is going to need to work with some leads. So let's talk yep. about the offense real quick. They're doing enough. We're seeing some big hits this weekend. Jake Berger's three-run double with the bases loaded. Fantastic to see. Even Romy Gonzalez coming through mm -hmm. with a two-RBI triple. Uh, out of nowhere, Romy Gonzalez having a game, having himself a game on Sunday. And we're still seeing the home runs, especially coming from Luis Robert, who just hit his 13th home run on Sunday for the season. That matches a single season high in his career for Luis Robert. He's already matched his single season high, and we are in the month of May. But when I look at the White Sox lineup, and this is starting to become a louder conversation, and it really points to one player in particular, and that is Tim Anderson. Does this lineup need a shakeup, Jim? Because right now, before Fangraphs updated after Sunday's game, so this is the result before Sunday's game, which Anderson only had one plate appearance. He did have a pinch hit single as Hans Roberto got injured during the game. But Anderson's weighted runs created plus is 58. He is 40 plus percent below league average right now. And that is your leadoff hitter. That doesn't scan. Like, does Pedro Grafal for like a week need to shuffle up the lineup until Tim Anderson gets back on track? It would be nice to see. I mean, he is Alcides Escobar right now. We've talked about this before. Like when he doesn't have his legs and he's as aggressive as he is and he's not being able to get the barrel around and lift the ball to the pole field. And he's settling for singles and a lot of ground balls. Like he's Alcides Escobar, except with leg injury, he can't run or he can't like steal bases. Can't be as dynamic uh, in that regard. So he is a very limited player. And I think, you know, the time has been, you know, overdue to knock him down the lineup. And the thing that confuses me is if he were struggling, but fully healthy. If he said, no, I feel great. And when I get on base, I run really well. Uh, it's just, I'm, my timing's not right. Like the conversation right now with Jose Abreu in Houston, where, you know, the conversation is, you know, is he getting old? Did he get old in a hurry? Uh, you know, it's not, it's not a health thing. It's not a work thing. It's just the, the barrel's not getting to where it needs to be. Uh, and they're trying to be very respectful about that because it is a tough conversation to have. And it's very, it's very problematic if your three year, $58 million, uh, signing is looks done in the first month of that contract. So, you know, that's the conversation where like, yeah, that is a delicate conversation to have, but with Anderson being hurt with having him having something to point to, I don't see the disrespect involved or, you know, the, the. Uh, repercussions throughout the lineup of, oh my God, you know, Pedro Grafal is coming in and laying down the law with Tim Anderson and no role is safe. No, he's, he's hurt. You know, he's, he's playing through a knee injury. Everybody's admitting it. Grafal's admitting it. Anderson's admitting it. So you can say, Hey, while you're working this out, we need you at shortstop because right now nobody's better, especially with Alberto hurt. Like, you know, whoever is capable of playing shortstop needs to play second. You know, he's out like, you need, we need you out there. We appreciate you playing through this, coming back from the injured list. But, you know, right now you're not, you know, not close to 100%. So we just need you to be in the field and be there for us. And you're going to take some of the stress off you by getting other guys up in the lineup. Like, 
I don't see the disrespect there. I don't see that Griffal would be insulting anybody because the numbers are the numbers and the quotes are the quotes. Like if Griff Anderson were denying it and saying like, no, I'm perfectly healthy, then you'd have tougher questions. But in this case, it seems pretty cut and dried to where uh, he's just not himself. And as long as he's not himself, uh, then you should pretend that he's somebody else and have him lower in the order. And, and you would think there's no insult there, especially like if Andrew Benintendi is doing a good job of getting on base. And you have other guys you might want to shuffle up in the order that might be able to uh, to get the lineup going. The White Sox right now have six hitters with a WRC plus higher than 100. And it's obviously Luis Robert, Yoan Makata, Andrew Vaughn, Jake Berger, Gavin Sheets, and Yasmani Grandal. And the way that they're starting their lineup, the way they're starting their games is Anderson and then Ben Attendee, who's who's got like a 92 weighted runs created plus right now. So he's slightly below league average, but he is below league average and neither Anderson or Ben attendee has a home run. It just feels like the white Sox offense does not get started until it gets into the middle of the order. Like it doesn't Mm -hmm. start until Luis Robert bats, but you're already two batters into the game. And I know that the bottom part of the lineup with the injuries that they're dealing with especially when you got Hans Alberto and Sebi Zavala down in the bottom of the order. That's like, oh my gosh, there's nothing at 8-9. But there's not much coming from Anderson at the moment. Before his pitch hit single, he went over 8 in this series with a couple double plays. He into two double plays on Saturday for the White Sox. Like, this lineup, I think, could be reconfigured to be better optimized. But it is going to require that very difficult conversation of moving Tim Anderson off of the leadoff spot and using somebody else, whether that's Ben attendee, because Ben attendee will be willing to draw a walk. If that's going to Yohan Makata, uh, whomever, but I don't think it makes any sense when you've got like Jake Berger batting sixth or seventh in the lineup and the way that he's hitting uh, I, you know, Yasmani Grandal, I know he's just singles, but maybe you should try to position him in a, in a better spot in the lineup where he's actually got runners on base that you could take advantage of those types of singles. And Robert, I think Robert hitting third is perfect right now for the White Sox. But if you want to move Makata and Robert up one, two, I won't have any qualms with that as well. I, I just feel like this lineup could be better optimized. And I know lineup conversations when it comes to baseball people will point out is like it's not that important but I think it is important at least in the short span here that if you want the White Sox offense to be a better well-oiled machine I think that they need a shakeup temporarily until Anderson gets back on track and when Anderson's back on track then boom put him back at the leadoff spot and then just run run with it but right now I it's very hard to convince me that your leadoff hitter who is 40% below league average should continue to bat leadoff to get through these struggles. Like I, I just, I don't buy that argument, Jim. Yeah. And, and the lineup conversation, you know, as you mentioned, like typically doesn't make that big of a difference, but when you do have like one of your worst hitters at the top and when you have a team where like, as we talked about with the bullpen protecting every possible lead, like runs do count. like the one run in this case, 
uh, does mean a lot for a White Sox pitching staff pitching like they are. So I'm thinking of like the Cleveland game against Logan Allen, where having a second run in that game really would have been helpful, uh, even though it would have shown as like, oh, you know, reshuffling the, the lineup only got him two runs instead of one. But maybe they handle the late innings differently uh, with the way that game's going because they have a one run lead versus, you know, being tied at one with Dylan Cease on the mound. So there, you know, with how high leverage these games are. Yeah, I agree. And with Anderson being hurt, that's, that's what I keep coming back to and why I don't get why it's a difficult conversation to have is because if he's hurt, then yeah. I mean, just pat him on the back for being a soldier and say when you're back 100%, you'll be back atop the lineup because we love the way you get on base and you run in the weird way that you do it. Um, but right now, as long as he's admitting that his legs aren't there and he's not able to get the right stride in the batter's box and he's not you know, exactly able to hit that fifth gear on the base paths and turn singles and doubles, and you know, he did get caught stealing as well, so it may be affecting him trying to get the extra base in the stolen base department as well, that, yeah, he's not the same guy. And he shouldn't be treated the same because when he has the skill set that he has and when it's all based on batting average, when it's all based on getting the most out of that barrel and that barrel's not doing it, he's not special and you know, he shouldn't be treated as special. And that's just kind of the cost of the way he does business. Like if you were more of a walk guy and we're hitting like, like let's say he was an elite on base guy, like he hit 300 with an on-base percentage of 380. Now he's hitting 240, but getting on base 330. Like, that would still be useful, mm-hmm. but right now Anderson is not useful. Yeah, that's why if you... At least at the top of the order. He's, he's useful, like, filling out a lineup, but not at the top of the order. Yeah, that, that's why if you want to make the argument, if White Sox fans want to make the argument, okay, well, they just have Andrew Ben attendee lead off and move Robert, Makata, Vaughn, Berger, Sheets, Grandal up one spot in the lineup. Okay, I, I could buy that because Ben attendee is getting on base, and, and that's what you need from your leadoff hitter. Anderson's not doing any of that. And he takes extra bases. Yeah. He takes extra bases. He can go from first to third, you know, uh, first to home. Like, th- that helps. It does. And, and, again, in a week or two-week span, your leadoff hitter's getting, what, three, four, five more plate appearances than your number two, number three, number four hitters in the lineup. But at this moment, where the White Sox are, I'd rather give those four or five extra plate appearances to either Luis Robert or Yohan Makata, Jim. And and I think the White Sox yeah. need that. So I, I'm in favor of a, of a lineup shakeup. I think it sounds like Jim is as well. Let us know in the comments section at SoxMachine.com how you guys would shake up the White Sox lineup. Uh, if you would, or maybe some of you still think that it's best of Tim Anderson, you don't move him off the leadoff spot. Uh, because that is where he's most comfortable. And if he's going to break out of the slump, he needs to be doing that from a place of comfort. I could also understand that argument as well, but I think that the White Sox lineup needs a, a brief shakeup in these extra couple weeks to continue the good vibes. And Jim and I are going to take a quick break for a word from our sponsor, but let's see if the good vibes continue for the White Sox as we preview their next series as they head to Cleveland to face the Guardians. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. 
Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Welcome back to the Sox Machine podcast. The Chicago White Sox, after a 6-3 and three homestand, now head on the road this week. They have three games in Cleveland, and then they have a four-game series at Detroit before they come back home to face the Los Angeles Angels starting that series on Memorial Day, and that's how the month of May ends for the White Sox. The Guardians. So the White Sox lead the season series 2-1, to one, and the Guardians are in a world of hurt right now. They are 20-26 and 26 in the season. They're four and a half games back of the Minnesota Twins. They just got swept in Queens against the New York Mets. And there was one game where they had a huge lead. Uh, they were up 7-1, and then they were up 7-3, and then Peter Alonso hit a game-tying grand slam, and, and the Mets made a dramatic comeback there. The Mets ended up coming back again on Sunday Night Baseball to beat the Guardians. So not everything's going great in Cleveland. The pitching problems for this series, Monday at 5.10 p.m. Central Time, it's to be announced for the White Sox, and it'll be Hunter Gaddis for the Cleveland Guardians. We'll get into the to-be-announced starter in a moment. Tuesday, 5, 10 p.m. Central Time, this is going to be a Sox machine from the 108 playback watch party, so you could watch the game along with us. Dylan Cease will be on the mound for the White Sox against Logan Allen, so a rematch of last Wednesday's game between the White Sox and Guardians. And then at Wednesday, getaway day, this game's going to start at 12, 10 p.m. Central Time, so lunchtime for those in Chicago during the workday. It'll be Michael Kopech. Can he repeat what he did against Kansas City, against Cleveland, and Cal Quantrill, which the Guardians have been playing really good baseball when Cal Quantrill is on the mound. So that could be a tough game for the White Sox. Back to Monday, and the to-be-announced starter, and we're in this situation, Jim, because Mike Clevenger is now on the 15-day injury list with his right wrist inflammation. So he's not going to be with the White Sox for a couple weeks. We talked about Davis Martin going on the injury list because of Tommy John surgery, and mm-hmm. poof, there goes your starting pitching depth. Any guesses on who is filling in for Clevenger's spot in the rotation? Seems like Jesse Schultons would be the guy. Like, he's... He got the week off in Charlotte, I think, in anticipation of Clevenger needing to hit the injured list. Um, He's been doing okay there. I mean, it's always tough to pitch in Charlotte, but he's got an ERA below four and striking out more than batter in inning, keeping the walks in check. Homers are a bit of a problem, but homers are a problem for everybody in Charlotte. So he's pitching, I think, as well as you'd expect from somebody who should be uh, getting spot starts in the major leagues in Charlotte. So He's doing fine. He represented himself well in his two appearances, although one lasted one pitch because Lance Alberto uh, threw away the bunt attempt and he lost the game in extra innings. But like, you know, the long relief uh, outing that he had in his major league debut was fine. He threw strikes, maybe looked a little bit hittable, but 
uh, made the other team beat him. And, you know, it was a low leverage situation, so it didn't matter. But, like, he did what he was supposed to do. So I don't mind seeing him get the ball again, get the ball a couple times just to understand, you know, whether he's a three inning guy or a five inning guy, because I think there are, you know, two kinds of spot starters, one where you have to plan for a tandem arm and another one where like he might get you most of the way there. Um, and, and I think the book's a little bit open on him because he has made strides over where he was, uh, you know, before he came to the White Sox. So I'm looking forward to it. I think after Jesse Schultons, I'm not looking forward to it. Like he's basically the one guy I think who, has earned a look in this regard and everybody else is more or less, you know, you throw up your hands and say, maybe just throw up your hands and throw up. Uh, but with, with Schultons, like he's, he's fine. You know, he's somebody who like, even if Davis Martin were around, but they needed a spot starter because Martin just started two days prior, like Schultons got the ball. That would be fine. So he's earned it. He might prove that he's a quadruple A arm and the White Sox will have to look elsewhere, really grit their teeth. But for the time being, I don't mind seeing him get the ball a couple times. Seven starts with the Charlotte Knights. Schultons is two and two on the season with a 3.99 ERA that covers 38 and a third inning. So he's averaging a little bit more than five innings per start with the Charlotte Knights. He does have 42 strikeouts and his whip is just 1.12. He's one of the few pitchers in Charlotte that is actually throwing well. Also give some credit to Nate Fisher. I don't know much about Nate Fisher, but he is putting up good numbers for the Knights. Really, the Knights have two starting pitchers, and the White Sox are going to have to borrow one of those starting pitchers. So I don't know what the Knights are going to do. Um, moving forward with Schultons, I don't know if there's anyone that could call call from Birmingham. You know, a, a little prospect talk <laughs> real quick. Mm-hmm. I think if you are a believer in Christian Mena. With Schultons, let's say that is the move that he rejoins the White Sox and he's now the fifth starter while Clevenger's out. I think we need to see Christian Mena, even though he's 20 years old, go up to AAA gym because I don't know what to believe with him and this tacky baseball that they're using in AA. Like, if you really <laughs> want to see him at some point in the major leagues, we need to see him in AAA and get some, get him to using the same baseball they're going to use in the major leagues. And we got Statcast now in Charlotte. Like, let's see where his stuff actually is, because I I don't know whether to believe what I'm seeing from Christian Mena and the stats, especially in the last couple of outings, are not promising. Yeah, it's really tough because you're going from the Southern League, which is already a little bit pitcher friendly and Birmingham is a comfortable place for pitchers. Then you make it even easier on them with the tacky ball. And you say, okay, it's, you know, go pitch in Charlotte now. It's like going from pitching underwater to pitching on the moon uh, when it comes to run environments. So I don't, you know, it's a case where I don't think there is a good answer with Mena. Like if he gets clobbered in AAA. I don't know if that tells you anything about the pitcher himself. I think it tells you maybe a little bit about the uh, circumstances in which he's pitching, but I think it's July 13th. After July 13th, uh, the Southern League will go back to using the regular baseballs. And even then, I don't expect to be like a, a switch flipping and expecting him to be like, you know, back to normal, uh, you, know, you know, turn into a pumpkin because lights are on. With... Mena, I think it's a case where, you know, he's young enough and he's certainly young enough for Birmingham to where by the end of the year, we should know about, you know, like whether the White Sox can count on him for any kind of innings in, you know, 2024, whether it's as a regular in the second half or as somebody just gets spot starts. Uh, But 
I wouldn't want the emergency of the 2023 White Sox and the rotation and uh, Mike Clevenger and Davis Martin and whatever AAA depth you have to affect him because this is a really tricky situation for somebody who, you know, I don't get why they're using the tacky ball the way that they're using the tacky ball. Like, it doesn't really make any sense. I get why, you know, there is a tacky ball to try to um, make it the enhanced script ball, they're calling it, to try to eliminate the need for pitchers to come up with their own concoctions and mess with spin rates the way that they did. But it seems like such a severe experiment at such a delicate stage of a lot of prospects development, because it's not only affecting guys like Mena, but like we're watching Luis Mieses take a huge step back when he was on a nice ascent and Jose Rodriguez looking really rough after a hand injury. Like a lot of these guys, you know, were building something and now it's all being toyed with in the middle of their careers. And in some cases, like the most important parts of their career. So Maine, it's affecting him a little bit differently and that it's helping him a little bit, it seems, but also he's so young that who knows? And I just hope that the White Sox, you know, Schultons holds the line well enough or Clevenger comes back to where like we don't have to be seriously batting around the idea of starting Christian Mena or, or having him go to Charlotte to see what he has, because that's a lot of pressure to put on a guy who's already being messed with uh, by minor league baseball. And they just don't have enough depth. That's that's yeah. the problem. Right. And Sean Burke's not throwing all that great. And he's been dealing with some health issues is yeah, well. shoulder fatigue, I think he's coming back from, I think his shoulder's fine now, but it basically cost him a spring training. And so he's trying to get uh, warmed up against live hitting. That's angry at him. Yeah. I think on the topic of Christian Mena, and, and again, for those that visit socksmachine.com and the daily Jim does a great job with the minor league recap. That's uh, definitely pumped the brakes on this conversation with Christian Mena. He only threw 49 pitches on Sunday, only got, through two and a third innings because he allowed six hits, six earned runs, one walk, two strikeouts, and he allowed a home run. Christian Mena's season ERA is now 6.27 using the enhanced grip baseball in double A. So never mind. So pretty much it's Jesse Schulten's Nate Fisher and the abyss. Maybe we have to take mm -hmm. a Madison. No, no, I'm not going to entertain that. I'm not even going to finish that, Jim. Let's talk about Cleveland's offense. Not good. But Jose Ramirez and Josh Naylor should be available in this series. Should we expect a different Cleveland offense this series than last week that was in Chicago? I think different enough to where there is a little bit more game planning in order with uh, Ramirez out and with Naylor uh, leaving in the middle of the first game, there wasn't really anybody to pitch around or try to get guys out before that guy comes to the plate. Uh, there wasn't anybody complicating their game planning. And I think with Ramirez and with Naylor in the right situations, that they are guys you want to avoid or don't walk the guy in front of Jose Ramirez or don't walk the uh, nine hitter, turn over the lineup to have Jose Ramirez come to the plate this inning. That's what this adds to the lineup. And while it doesn't seem like much and doesn't seem like one hitter should be able to impact a game, we've seen Jose Ramirez impact a ton of games. We've seen Josh Naylor, uh, you know, basically roast the White Sox on the field after, um, you know, damaging them with just uh, yeah, a couple of backbreaking blasts. So we've seen, seen them do enough to where the White Sox have to take them seriously. And that's enough to at least affect the way they approach hitters before them. And so far, I mean, like this week and, you know, 
last you know few series at least like the bullpen's done a lot better job of not making messes like the classic Aaron Bummer walking or you know allowing a, a rocket single the first guy you face and all of a sudden like the guy you're supposed to get out is now the guy in base and the guys you're supposed to struggle with now have a guy to drive in we haven't seen the White Sox relievers walking or, or tripping into that situation so often so hopefully it's the case with Ramirez back and they don't let their guard down but I guess the nice thing about being still you know 10 games under 500 now and you so far out of the division and so 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 far away from the wild card is that you really can't afford to take any series lightly any opponent lightly any lineup lightly and maybe they've you know it's at least sharpened their focus to not be surprised when a guy like jose ramirez comes back in the lineup and all of a sudden the game keeps finding him because he's a really good player jose ramirez is the only cleveland guardians player that has an ops above 700 Ramirez's season OPS is 843, and despite having seven home runs and 31 RBIs, Josh Naylor's OPS is 673 because he's hitting 221, 273 on base percentage and slugging 400. So, yeah, it's the Jose Ramirez show for the Cleveland Guardians. We'll see if Jesse Schultens and Dylan Cease and Michael Kopech can minimize the damage, if any, when Jose Ramirez is hitting. Again, it's like that Kansas City series at Kaufman cannot have base runners on for Vinny Bascutino and Salvador Perez. Guess what? The White Sox did not do a very good job of that. They got burned <laughs> in mm-hmm. that series. So here we are again. It's like the same story. This is a bad Cleveland offense. Can the White Sox pitching remain red hot from this past week at home does it carry over to Cleveland and start on this road trip? Because three against Cleveland, four at Detroit. I know this is seven division games on the road, Jim, but this is manageable. Like the White Sox should go four and three, if not five and two. And if you really want to take this White Sox team seriously to climb out of this hole that they dug themselves, they need to have another outstanding week. Like I'm not joking. Going... Five and one this week is fantastic. You need to do that three more times in the next month. So you're back to 500 before you have to go out to Los Angeles and face the Dodgers. Like you need to continue to build up these types of weeks. And I think it's imperative that they have to start strong again against Cleveland this week. Yeah, I think we saw that play out, you know, losing the ability to sweep or losing the opportunities to sweep the Twins and the Guardians. Then the opportunity to sweep the Royals comes up. And while you don't want to be in a position where you have to sweep a team, it's a case where if you need to get back into this, you have to sweep the Royals. And they swept the Royals. So I think we're seeing them start to be able to finish the job. And, you know, the task gets tougher with Cleveland because they're better than Kansas City, obviously. And Tigers look that way too. But, you know, hopefully it's a case where We've seen them, you know, have opportunities to sweep. And as long as they keep setting up opportunities to sweep, they'll be in good shape. And and occasionally seeing it through is, is great. But, you know, losing the first two games of the series, losing, you know, series after series after series like they did to start the season, uh, they do have to tilt that the other way. So, yeah, you can't expect like a 10-game winning streak. But, you know, when they do stumble, you know, in a, in a game like they did against the Guardians, like getting right back up. And, and finishing the job is what they need to do. And hopefully uh, the you know facing the central teams and feeling like they're at home, even if they're on the road, is what we'll continue to see uh, because it's a lot more watchable and a lot more enjoyable to talk about, even if we are aware that this team still isn't great. Let's see how it works out. We'll have 
The White Sox wake-up calls, of course, will have Sox Machine Live Wednesday night to recap the Cleveland series and then preview the upcoming four-game series as the White Sox head to Detroit for the first time in 2023, facing the second-place Detroit Tigers. I'm still not used to saying that. The second-place Detroit Tigers right now in 2023 behind the Minnesota Twins, who still lead the American League Central. But a big week for the White Sox. Let's see if they could continue the good vibes from this past week at home. But that will do it for this Sox Machine podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. If you enjoy our work, you could follow us on Twitter. We're at Sox Machine. I'm at Sox Machine underscore Josh. Those are also our Instagram handles. If you just discovered the Sox Machine podcast, you can subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Spotify and Apple Music. We also upload our podcast episodes into our YouTube channel, which you can watch or listen at youtube.com slash Sox Machine. And if you do that, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. We'll be very grateful for doing that. Also, you can get more from us by becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash SoxMachine, where our Patreon supporters get exclusive content, ad-free versions of both the podcast and the website, and when we have new Sox Machine swag in the Sox Machine store, they're the first ones to receive it. Monthly plans start at $2, or you can save with an annual subscription. Again, sign up at patreon.com slash SoxMachine. The Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com. You're up for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening and watching. Thanks for listening and watching.